of this course and as I predicted in the beginning not because I'm a prophet but because I've taught so many courses it goes very fast it's uh, over much quicker than one expects it to be while one is doing it one thinks oh dear another day and then as one is finished with it one looks back and thinks goodness where has the time gone well the same applies to one's life exactly the same it's very useful to remember this as one lives every day very often the thought is oh dear another day but when you look back you see it's very quickly gone now you have to consider what you're going to do with the things you have heard learned actually done or experienced and how you can integrate that into your daily life and continue with practice from past experience continue with practice is only for a few not that the others don't want to everybody wants to everybody goes home with the determination I'm now going to do this forever after I can assure you that's a wrong attitude there's only one way to do that to get up every morning and say today this morning I'm meditating and every evening to sit down and say this evening I'm meditating because if that isn't done that idea forever after becomes enormous because forever after sounds infinite and nobody sticks by it it's nothing but a hope and a prayer that's all it's not reality in order to make something out of this spiritual teaching one's got to keep both feet on the ground that's our springboard that's where we are located right here in this realm on this earth and as we te- as we learn and as we practice our inner being changes but we've got to stay right on the ground in quite an interesting book which I recently read there was a sentence which really I could identify with mystics are the most practical people nobody is as practical as they are anybody who's flying off into esoteric heights with their mind and think that the ground doesn't have to be looked after hasn't understood the teaching so every morning and every evening a new determination I'm going to do it now if one has made the uh, resolution to do it ever after the mind has lots of excuses because ever after is a long time so sure, so today wouldn't matter if I don't do it I've got a long time still I've got forever after and then tomorrow of course it's also every excuse in the world not to do it because I still got ever after and so life goes on but today if I have that determination I'm going to do it now right now it's the only time I'm going to do it what comes afterwards well that's a new day and a new evening there is no excuse 
The only thing the mind can say, I'm too lazy, I'm not doing it. But all the other justifications are mostly not valid at that time. One can, of course, think it's too cold, it's too hot, it's too early, it's too late, I'm too full, I'm too empty. These are the uh, things that the Buddha said in a discourse that's the way a fool reacts to going and sitting down to meditate. We have much better excuses, of course, because we have really very intricate minds. We can say when we don't have so much work in the job, when the children are grown, when the partner also comes and sits down with me, when the house is finished building, when whatever. Those excuses are all just excuses. That's all they are. We have time to eat three times a day, four times, five times, who knows how often. We've got time for all that. And that keeps the body in in order. That's what it should do. It should keep the body in order. But there's got to be something that keeps the mind in order. It's the only thing that will ever get the mind in order. Not to speak about keeping the mind in order. The only mind that's in order is the mind of an arahant, of an enlightened one. Every other mind is not in order. But it's the only thing that will ever get it in order and also maintain what order it has already. So if we have time to eat and time to sleep, and we need to have that time, obviously the body has to have that kind of attention, then we must have time for meditation. The reason I am emphasizing this because in every course I have everybody fill out one of those sheets and it says at the bottom, how often do you meditate? And the answers are exactly the way I am now relating to them. Sometimes a little, every two weeks, twice a week, once a week, last six months I didn't, and so on. There's no way to even maintain what one has done here if one doesn't do it daily. How are you going to maintain the health of the body if you don't eat every day and sleep every day and drink every day? How are you going to maintain this body? It's not possible to maintain it. How are you going to maintain the mind? There's no way to maintain it unless it it is done every day. Every morning is a rebirth. So we'll have to live that rebirth. One should have a little place in one's house, a corner, anything where there's a pillow where one can sit down in the morning and in the evening or whatever times one has designated and do one's meditation. If this is a very new thing for anyone, but I don't know that it is actually, a shorter period is all right, but anyone who has practiced meditation for any length of time should at least start with 45 minutes and work up. 45 minutes for a month, then another five added to it until it's at least an hour. And then if there is time, if one doesn't have too many worldly obligations, add to that. The time, the mind needs time to settle down. Some people are fortunate. They can do it very quickly. Most people can't. You can imagine the mind to be like a pond of water into which a child is throwing stones. As a stone hits the water, it makes rings in the water. 
it takes time for those rings to subside and to have the calmness of water the stones that are thrown into our mind are our sense contacts they create rings in the mind because the mind has to um, reply to the sense contact the sense contact alone never happens so it takes time for those rings in the mind to subside and become calm the more time we can give to it at a sitting the better it is if we start with 45 minutes and work up every month five minutes more it's excellent the other way around of course is useless every month five minutes less if we feel that we are slipping that means that we haven't got the determination and we haven't got the impetus anymore it's important to attend a meditation course where and how these exist is beyond my knowledge in this country I don't know anything about them in this little corner or room that one has designated for meditation one should keep one's pillow in place we don't take our dishes out of the kitchen our towels out of the bathroom our chairs out of the dining room when we go to the kitchen we've got the pots and pans there so that we can cook when we go to the bathroom we've got the towel there in order to dry ourselves when we go to our meditation corner the pillow is there to sit on so that we don't have to start thinking where is it or I can't find it well maybe tomorrow right there in its place and then we can decorate the corner have flowers Buddha statue whatever helps us some people like it absolutely stark nothing white wall fine some people like flowers some people like a Buddha statue some people like Kuan it doesn't matter whatever whatever helps the mind to get away from worldly thinking if one takes a look maybe at beautiful flowers and knows that they'll be gone tomorrow maybe the mind relates to impermanence and can sit down and forget about all this worldly thinking it's a very good practice to start with loving kindness for oneself and maybe for the people that one lives with and that one might meet that day it doesn't take very long if one doesn't feel it at least think it if one feels it so much the better but thinking it will get the feeling there too eventually at least the mind isn't thinking any kind of negative if one has an established practice which gets one absorbed that's the way to do it never forget that too is impermanent recapitulate how was my pathway what did I learn it's extremely important those three steps without them the whole thing is just a substitute for what one can't get in the world if one doesn't gain insight from the meditation then it is actually done in vain although the calm helps the mind without insight there's no change in what's in a being so whatever meditation we've done whether it's absorbed or otherwise whether it's concentrated or whether it's distracted at the end 
that too is impermanent what did I do what did I learn there's something to learn from every quiet time if we don't learn something from it we're going to stay the way they are we are nobody's really quite satisfied with that got to learn what that whatever it was has brought to us the mind is distracted that too has a teaching quality what is it that we are distracted with is it nonsense is it a problem is it ideas abstract thinking planning hoping remembering what is it fear anxiety restlessness worry dislike what is it or am I imagining that I'm meditating and actually I'm thinking everything helps to find out something about oneself one should at least think that one does this morning and evening if one has more time in one's daily life and one can sit again another time that's very good that's very helpful morning and evening will only maintain that what one has gained in the course it will not increase the concentration it will maintain it if you want to increase one has to sit more than just morning and evening it's very good if one has a companion with whom one can sit down to meditate only very few people have that great uh, boon in life that they are living with someone who also meditates together with them those that do are undoubtedly very grateful for their good karma but besides that and particularly if one doesn't have anyone to meditate with it's essential that one has at least once a week a group situation where one can meditate with a group it supports one's own effort also one meets like-minded people it doesn't mean that one then has to buttonhole every one of those and tell them one's own meditation experiences please don't we're going to lose friends instead of making them but to meet like-minded people is important in this life because one or two of them might become really noble friends close friends and there might be a very good and solid association in any case whatever it is it's a support system for one's own practice having someone else there doing the same thing underwrites that what one is doing is not an isolated instance in this universe but it is something that other people also consider valuable and give their best to so to find a group situation at least once a week is very helpful maybe at this time I'll say right away there is a new center in Sydney in Lewisham it's called the Buddhist Education Center and at this point in time uh, Chi Kuang is living there and not for very long unfortunately and every Wednesday night and every Friday night there is meditation Wednesday night's meditation Friday night just to talk with us right so two you will find like-minded people there and if you're interested you get the address from Chi Kuang after we're finished here 
um, and then you can write it down and it's every Wednesday night at 7.30 and Friday also at 7.30 7.30 and when she leaves there hopefully there'll be somebody else there it's a newly established place which is just for that purpose that uh, Buddhists can meet there or meditators or people who would like to find out about Buddhism or those who want to find out about meditation and get introduction and also can meet others there. So if you have any friends or relations that would like to find out what you've been doing for the past two weeks, it might be an idea to bring them along there. There are also pamphlets and books there that can be looked into. When you get home, here, yes, of course, yes. Um, well, that uh, I don't think I need to mention because everyone who's been in this course is and will be or is already on the mailing list if the office function at all. If it's functioning at all, they are on the mailing list. And so they will receive all the information of the courses and weekends that are going to take place here. Um, the, um, the last Bodhi Leaf, which is a newsletter from this place, is as far as I know available in the office and it has a list of the courses which are coming up. So if you would like that, I think you can just ask for it in the office. Um, and the new things will be uh, in the next Bodhi Leaf, which you can will get in the mail, hopefully in not too long a time. I'm sorry, I can't say when. The... Um, because everything is, you know, sort of being restructured at this point. If you live in Melbourne, are there any Melbourne people still here? Yes. Oh, yes, quite a few, actually. (laughs) Um, If you live in Melbourne and you don't have any particular group you're going to, Harry, put your hand up, Harry, would like to uh, organize something like that, uh, possibly in your house, Harry? Okay. So if you're interested in that, please talk to Harry after we are finished here. It's really important to have that kind of togetherness. It it helps one to keep the um, momentum going, not as strongly as in a course that's impossible because we have an intensive and uh, we have a protected situation. But uh, it certainly helps very strongly to keep the momentum going. So with um, those two are the only ones that I know about Sydney and Melbourne and the, um, as I say, things that are happening here. Uh, Anya, whom you've all met, is giving a weekend course here in March, which is also listed in that body leaf, which um, you can get in the office and you'll see the, um, all the different things that are happening. Good karma weekends are particularly uh, recommended. They mean that one helps uh, to um, uh, do some work around the place, which is always needed, and make some good uh, karma that way, and at the same time have meditation and also a Dhamma talk. It's also listed in that newsletter. Anya is a student of mine, has been with me for five years, and has been authorized by me to teach teaches in the same tradition and in the same direction as I teach. So, um, therefore, I'm mentioning her um, particularly. 
she's starting to teach in Australia. She started last year in Australia and is now going to Canberra to teach. So if there's anybody here from Canberra, anybody left from Canberra? Yes. <laughs> um, she's giving a weekend course in Canberra. And, uh, no, I mean, Anya is not even Australian, she's Dutch. <laughs> yes, at this point in time, yes, I wish I could. Nobody has either come forward to say they can do it or they would like to do it. There's a certain criteria that has to be established first <laughs> before one can do such a thing. And um, so uh, Anya, not being Australian, of course, is not here all the time. But she does have a very uh, soft spot in her heart for this place where she has lived before and uh, will probably come back again next year to teach. Um, I'm not coming next year. I'm intending to celebrate my 70th birthday in peace and quiet in the Bavarian forest, surrounded by trees, and travel a little less. So uh, that's next year. I might come the year after. I haven't decided on that yet. Well, my body will decide, I'm sure. I I don't have to decide. (laughs) So um, if I do, I'm sure you'll see it listed in the body leaf if the body leaf is running and going. The uh, togetherness with like-minded people then can be extended to reading some books. But if you read a Dhamma book, whether it is the actual words of the Buddha or the interpretation such as my books are, they are not to be read like an ordinary book. Well, you can, of course, but they don't do you much good then. All you can remember probably is the title and even that not very well. Um, They have to be read in a different way. Almost like we used to read our school books. I remember very well being quite small and having a, a reader with pictures in it and reading, reading. I was very good in reading and reading and reading and reading thinking, oh, very interesting, very interesting. Came to school the next day, didn't have a clue of what I was supposed to have read and of course did, got very bad marks because I didn't pay attention to the page I was supposed to have read. I kept reading, 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 thinking it's very interesting. Now the same applies to a Dhamma book. Read one page, then take a notebook and write down in telegram style the essence of that page. One word, two words, five words, the essence, and then practice it. Practice that essence, whatever it says. Maybe it says, uh, be mindful, watch your body actions. Okay, practice. And after you've practiced that a while and you think, okay, that one I can remember. Next page. If there isn't anything in particular interesting on that page that you can really pick out to do, which should be unlikely. A good Dhamma book has something on every page. Read a, par- read a chapter, but no more than that. The essence and on the piece of paper, in a notebook, buy yourself a nice notebook and write on top Dhamma Essence or, or the title of the book or whatever you write, like to write or practicing or whatever and then actually do that. It's a way to remember. How can we practice if we don't remember? We don't have a teacher sitting there telling you what to do. You've got to be your own teacher. 
If you're not your own teacher, who's going to teach you? Where are you going to go? Who's going to tell you? Man's got to do it that way. That's how I learned my Dhamma. Got stacks of these notes. Now I know them by heart. You can't learn it just by reading it. There's, there are geniuses who have photographic memory. I don't know. Nobody's mentioned it that they've got that. So it's very rare. Get the essence, write it down, and you know what the Dhamma is all about. Once you have practiced it, having read it, even remembered it, still that one doesn't know what the Dhamma is all about. Only when one's done it. And then, having done it, means one has experienced it, whatever it may be. Maybe one moment of mindfulness of a body movement. One moment. One's done it. Well, one knows it. The understood experience. Don't forget those two words. The understood experience. Without that, there is no progress. The experience is that what we actually feel. What we understand is that what we actually know. So heart and mind are connected. Don't forget those two words. The understood experience. Without that, the path is not open. It's a wonderful pathway. It's one that gives everything that a human being could possibly want, could possibly ever experience. It's complete, it's total. And one's got to do it. And one's got to be totally honest about oneself to oneself. Satcha, S-A-C-C-A, is the Pali word for truth. It's one of those ten virtues which I mentioned last night just in passing, explaining generosity. And truth does not just mean not lying. Well, I mean, our mothers told us all that. We know we're not supposed to lie. It's not nice. One doesn't do that. It's far more than that. Truth is far more. Truth is in seeing knowing what is going on inside of oneself and being totally honest about it to oneself if one doesn't have a noble friend one doesn't have to tell anybody telling oneself is sufficient and then as one uh, realizes what one is actually experiencing the knowledge arises how this path progresses from step to step meditation is the tool it's a means, not the end. It's just the means. It's the tool which we need. You know, in the time of the Buddha, people, of course, meditated, and monks and nuns all meditated. But there are many stories of people who became enlightened by listening to one Dhamma discourse. We've got 25 tapes here. There's a story of a nun who had had her lunch in her arms bowl and then she washed the arms bowl out and then she poured the water into the sand and as the water trickled away in the sand and disappeared she became so aware of 
the impermanent nature of everything dissolving that that was her moment of enlightenment well most of you are washing dishes every day aren't you so see what happens with washing dishes washing dishes while washing dishes she was totally focused on what she was doing doesn't have to be an arms pool I mean any cup or saucer will do it's all the same thing and it doesn't have to be sand see it gurgling down the drain same thing watch it see it it's a matter of inseeing so that is the most important thing to do in one's daily life mindfulness being attentive to what one is doing with the body feeling with one's emotions the moods that arise in the mind and the mental content which is so to say the reaction to the whole business not all four all at once it's an impossibility whichever one is appropriate constantly constantly is a nice injunction once every 10 minutes is also pretty good but if one does it at once every 10 minutes it becomes a habit and eventually that habit takes over and one cannot think anymore without registering what it was and one can't have an emotion anymore without the register the observer being quite objective and saying aha such a thought such an emotion such a mental mood and then at that time it's possible to choose whether one wishes to react or whether one just wants to let it all go there are some situations where it's quite necessary to react in some manner or form because it's something has to be done but most occasions are quite useful to just let go makes life much easier and it doesn't mean doing nothing it's a wonderful misconception that's the 13 months loss and torpor mindfulness is very good self-discipline it's very strong attention it's knowing exactly what's going on with oneself and makes it possible to purify the words of the Buddha the one way for the purification of beings for the minimizing of pain grief and lamentation for the final elimination of all dukkha for entering the noble path for realizing nibbana mindfulness the one way ekayana ekar one yana vika the one vika it's a daily practice we can always do it we don't need a meditation hall we don't need a teacher we don't need a cushion we don't need anything we just got to be there 
without all the encumbrances in the mind which are constantly going into future and past which are trying to figure out how wonderful one is or how terrible one is neither we are neither wonderful nor are we terrible we just are that's all and as long as we are practicing we are also trying and that's about the best one can say about any meditator and that's totally sufficient one is trying that's all that's necessary what else could be necessary so mindfulness in daily living is the one thing which is really at the top of the list of whatever one is doing when one is mindful one also becomes a bit aware a bit more aware of the karmic connections of doing good deeds and having good results of doing bad deeds and having bad results because most of them are almost immediate saying something nasty one usually gets something nasty back unless one is confronted with a very good practitioner who wouldn't do that but the least one gets back is a nasty feeling having said something good having tried to be helpful one can see that the other person is happy about it and even if they're not oneself is happy one sees the connection between good and bad karma and good and bad results and seeing that one is more inclined to make good karma one has an impetus to make it because one sees the one that is profiting from that is oneself that's the one that's making the biggest profit sometimes one doesn't feel like doing something nice for somebody else because one is tired or one has to think about one's own situation or one hasn't got enough time or one has already done so many good things for other people or all sorts of ores no good excuses keep on doing it not to the extent of physical exhaustion of course because then one is also not useful anymore but certainly as the one way of creating inner purity and inner happiness in the easiest possible manner so concentration is not all that easy is it sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and then sometimes it doesn't at all do anything so this is the easiest possible manner of creating inner happiness making good karma by being helpful and generous and not only when it's suitable within one's own sphere of things everybody has their own sphere their families and their jobs and their houses and their life insurances and their cars and their mechanics and all these things that have to be taken care of not only when it's quite suitable within that but even at times when it's totally unsuitable that is the noble friend who does things which are hard to do without expecting results they come automatically an automatic happiness within contentment no remorse 
So we have mindfulness, we have making good karma, we have our meditation, we have group support, we have another thing, a book, we have another thing which is a companion for mindfulness. And I'll explain that to you now. Because it's a very important thing to practice. And it's not difficult. But one's got to remember. It's called clear comprehension. And it's mentioned by the Buddha together with mindfulness. Mindfulness in Pali is Sati, S-A-T-I. And it's mentioned together with Sampanyanya. Sati, Sampanyanya, the two words come together in the teaching more often than not which means mindfulness and clear comprehension. Mindfulness is knowing, knowing only, totally objectively, no judge and jury, not even discriminating, just knowing. In fact, I had a monk teacher once, many, many years ago, here in Australia, was a Thai, and his English was atrocious. He hadn't learned it, he was just new from Thailand. And he kept saying, knowing only, knowing only, knowing only. And I thought, what's he talking about? I couldn't understand what he's talking. Then after about two months of this, I finally dawned on me, knowing only. That's what he was talking about. He was talking about mindfulness. But it took me two months to figure out what it meant. And then it took me another month to realize that mindfulness and knowing only are the same thing. So it's knowing only, really being there. I even remember the name of this monk. Um, but clear comprehension is a different story. Clear comprehension is the companion. So when we become mindful, let's say, of an intention, an intention to say something or an intention to do something, before we actually carry out that intention, we can take several steps to make sure that that intention is really a good one. Because we often kid ourselves, more often than not, that our intentions are lofty and are honorable, but in reality, they're ego-centered. So the first thing that we look at with clear comprehension is the purpose of what we're trying to either say or do. We can carry it as far as thinking. What's the purpose of this thought? These are our three doors. Thinking, speaking, acting. We have no other doors. That's how we get into the world. Huh? So we can use it on all three. What's the purpose of this? Well, if the mind then answers, no purpose at all obviously we can drop it but the mind may say mm, very good purpose something wonderful is going to come out of this he's at last going to understand what I really want so then we have maybe agreed that the purpose is useful of what we're going to say then the next step is is this what we're going to do, the way we have intended to do it, are we actually going to use the most skillful means? Are we having the skillful means on hand? Do we know them? And if we know them, 
are we ready to employ them? Now this is of course going to slow the speech or action down considerably but that's no harm done. It removes being impulsive and instinctive so it is extremely helpful even to go only that far is already helpful what's the purpose have I got the skillful means on hand if the answer to both of them is yes good purpose skillful means are there the next question is crucial is purpose and other skillful means within the Dhamma now that crucial question can only be answered with some measure of truthfulness if we actually know the Dhamma and since it's not to be expected that one can learn the Dhamma very quickly because there's too much of it maybe we can use the five precepts as our knowledge of the Dhamma and as the criteria the yardstick by which to measure that third step that would be quite sufficient is the purpose and other means within the five precepts and if the answer to that is yes everything is fine purposes are right skillful means are on hand and the uh, five precepts are not being broken then one goes ahead and having done or said whatever it was as a fourth step fourth step one then has a look to see whether one actually has accomplished one's purpose and if not why not what went wrong were the means not skillful enough was the Dhamma not being kept or was the whole intention not straightforward what was it why didn't it work and having inquired into that one will undoubtedly learn to do it much more skillful next time it takes away impetuous action and impetuous uh, conversation but it certainly does not need and will not remove spontaneity because one can be quite alert and aware and awake to the moment by checking each moment in that manner we check each moment like that if the whole world were to do that there'd be far less uh, recriminations far less remorse far less enmity if everybody were to do that it's a very very good practice and very worthwhile to remember what's the purpose have I got the skillful means on hand is it always in the five precepts and then having done it or said it have I accomplished my purpose and if not why not one learns an awful lot from that in fact one learns enough to restructure one's whole approach 
to speech and action. This is a companion to mindfulness and extremely important in daily life. Obviously, that the keeping of the five precepts that we took last night will be one of the features of one's spiritual life in daily living. It taxes one's strength far more than one imagines because instinct and inclination go against those precepts. So it taxes the inner strength, the inner conviction. And again, as I mentioned already once before, it's the fourth one which has the greatest um, danger of being broken. It's the one that when in monasteries and nunneries the monthly confession is being recited, which is one of the features of monasteries and nunneries in this tradition, that's the one that's always being confessed to by quite a number of people that that one has been broken the others are fairly hard to break in a monastery or in a nunnery but that one is easily broken so we have that in lay life the same so if we keep those five precepts in mind and have them as a guideline we can feel that we are living without remorse within the Dhamma it gives a feeling of bolstering the security and the buoyancy of the mind because there is no feeling of is it right or is it wrong we know it's right because we've done it it keeps the flow of life much smoother the companions that we have are the most important aspect of the holy life I told you already that the Buddha said of recrimination without any fear that at a later time that difficulty that one has discussed may be used as an insult or as an accusation without any fear that a secret may not be kept that kind of noble friend is the kind of noble friend that helps one on the spiritual path. Recriminations, accusations are not part of the human relationship or should not be part. When they become part of human relationships, the relationships break down to the point where they are very often irrevocably broken. We need to be noble friends in order to have noble friends And, of course, the practice of the precepts, which entails the difference, practicing the difference, is our daily challenge. Loving kindness and compassion in everyday life, much more difficult than in this meditation hall. Sitting here at night, after having had a day of meditation, and thinking about people out there 
and giving them loving kindness that's a cinch but being confronted with someone who's really difficult that's when we have when we are put on our metal I tell you a story about that and you'll probably be able to relate to that quite well it's again a Zen story a story of a Zen master who lived in a community with his disciples and amongst the disciples was one who was utterly and completely impossible nobody could get along with that one he was always insulting, abusive uh, unfriendly and people were just trying to practice as much as they could just in order to live with that person one day this person became so angry and so furious that he ran away and everybody heaved a sigh of relief finally he's gone and then they saw the Zen master running after him and bringing him back and so the next morning one of the disciples went to the Zen master and said you know sir we were all so glad this fellow was gone what you bring him back for and he said I'm paying him to be here <laughs> it's a standard joke in all nunneries and monasteries I'm paying this guy to be here there's always one like that in fact the question the story is never ever told for, for, twice the only thing that's said is usually how much are you paying <laughs> these are the people that we learn it from without such a person we'll never learn it that's someone that we really learn it from up to the point where we realize either that it's done or it's creating so much negativity in the mind that we can't handle it any longer then we have to remove ourselves with the understanding that we just haven't grown enough yet not blaming the other person but recognizing the fact that this is one step too far and then coming back at another time and trying it again maybe with the same person or another one that's equally um, unpleasant it's the unpleasant people that put us on our metal that are the challenge and the more unpleasant they are the more the challenge that's all if we then can keep compassion going then we know that compassion has really happened if we can only keep it going if somebody is suffering and is really quite um, pleasant then it hasn't been established yet but we also need to realize how much damage is being done to our own mind if we are constantly negative and protect ourselves from that so we need to have a fine balance how far do we practice how far can we go and where do we have to retract our steps and come back another time only we ourselves can know there are moments when this can be done quite easily when we can have that challenge and work with it and other times if there are other priorities 
then that challenge may not be the appropriate thing to work with. We all need, we know that. So we have everything laid on for us in daily life to practice. All we have to do is remember to do something. Obviously we're going to forget. Everybody does. But if we then remember again to be mindful, to use clear comprehension, to actually practice loving kindness and compassion, it means that we have again brought the mind back into the transcending aspect of the worldly life. Every time we forget, we're back in the worldly life. Before we do our last loving-kindness meditation together and the sharing of merits, this is your chance to last ask the very last question. Yes, yes. recognition it's without without um, yes it's perception yes without without reaction yet if you can yes if you have perceived it and then not reacting but before reacting to it starting that peer comprehension series Mm, knowing only, knowing only, yes. Oh, well, not according to the Buddha. But he was just trying to m- make the people understand what mindfulness meant and his English was very fractured, so he had, didn't have many words at his command. I mean, he couldn't, you know, talk like this. So he just tried to pinpoint that. He didn't, I don't remember him trying to say that's the only thing to do. He was trying to explain mindfulness with knowing only. But when you only wash dish washing dishes, you don't have to have any reaction. The washing dishes were washing dishes. And as you're washing dishes, you're totally aware of physical movement. So that's, that's all that's needed at that time. That's no, then you no need nothing else. But if you, for instance, become aware of the mental content or of the mental mood and you want to start reacting to that, then your clear comprehension is a very valuable tool. if you don't want to react yeah but you see clear comprehension goes to the point of intention and intention is mental formation not perception perception is labeling naming right so when we get to the point of intention we are in a mental formation and that is when clear comprehension starts what is my intention? What's my purpose? What's my motivation? That's when it starts. And then the next thing is, am I having a skillful means for this intention? 
am I actually within the Dhamma and how, how have I actually succeeded but when you only stop at that moment of perception and don't go any further you're probably either in a meditation course or totally alone because in daily life it is impossible people don't manage that sorry then you're with your physical movement just physical movement just physical movement that's the first base of mindfulness I think you had that you had that confused once before let's go through that again there are four bases of mindfulness and one is body kaya nupasana one is feeling vedana nupasana one is the mental state right chitta nupasana and then one is the content so the content of the mind so it's Dhammanupasana next one is the content Chittanupasana what is the Chitta doing so these are the four bases of mindfulness body, the body the feeling the mental um, state and then the mental content right but that's not the four states of mind so the four states of mind start out with sense contact and the sense contact brings about feeling and the feeling brings about perception and the perception brings about the recognition or the mental mental reaction and the mental formation, the mental reaction. So if you're gardening and you're using mindfulness, you're having mindfulness of the first foundation, which is the body. Right? If you're gardening and you want to become aware of your four mental states, then you have first touch contact, because you're doing something, touch contact. Second thing is there's some feeling whatever it is it may be pleasant unpleasant or neutral right and then is the perception of that feeling or of the, the contact whichever labeling happens the labeling may be gardening 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 and if you're only saying gardening 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 that's fine but if the mind says I like gardening you've gone the next step you've got the mental formation so you must keep those four things apart because they are different they all interact of course naturally but if you want to make sure where you're at and that's what you're trying to do you've got to keep the four apart um, unfortunately both of them are four which makes it a little more difficult that's why the components are always called five because the body is added to it so that's one so that's called the five aggregates yeah so it makes it easier maybe maybe I shouldn't have done that with the four things to get the confusion going five aggregates is one thing and four bases of mindfulness is another is that better now? okay Well, the Buddha said meditation is also mindfulness. Yes. You see, when in the Satipatthana Sutta, in the discourse on the uh, foundations of mindfulness, he says, and the monk sits down with crossed legs under the tree, uh, keeps his body erect, and puts mindfulness before him. Whatever that's supposed to mean. I mean, you don't want it there, you want it here, no? But um, it's a translation. And I was just thinking, <laughs> with these translations, this is a di- digression, but I thought I'd mention that. 
You know, when I was explaining something the other day, I said it feels like jet lag, right? Well, everybody knows what that is. But imagine in 5,000 years or in 3,000 years or in 2,000 years, somebody reads this. I mean, it's not likely that that it's going to happen. But if somebody were to read it and said, jet lag, jet lag, jet lag. Oh, jet must be something that spurts. And leg, there must be something in between. So it spurts in between. That's what we are up uh, up against with the translations of the Pali Sutta. Yes. And I thought, oh, yes, jet lag, wonderful, you know. Everybody knows. And so two and a half thousand years ago, everybody knew what it meant to establish mindfulness before him. But now when you see the word before, you think, before, before, why before? Why not here? You know? So meditation is mindfulness. And the attention on the breath is anapanasati. Sati, mindfulness of in-breath, out-breath. So the two are actually the same thing, except that you can't sit under a tree with corset legs all day long, but one's got other things to do. So one doesn't leave the mindfulness under the tree and under the pillow on the pillow but takes it with one and actually there's a long description or I think it's in that sutta that the, which you want to get the tape I think it's right in there um, how one takes one's mindfulness with one into the village and uh, how one takes it along and also brings it back how one takes it along and doesn't bring it back how one doesn't take it along but brings it back and uh, it's the again the language is difficult but I've explained it in those sutras I mean in those tapes I mean. the, the it becomes habitual it's just that people who do it all the time are usually people who are either living in the forest or in a monastery or in a nunnery and have been practicing a long, long time and have had their meditation practice very well established and they are so habituated to either watching their mental states or watching their emotions or watching their movements that it's so habitual that they don't get out of it anymore. For anyone who does this sort of um, part-time, it becomes extremely difficult. Everybody would, anything you do part-time is difficult. Anything you do full-time becomes easier. No, I can't, I can't judge that because I don't see them every day. I don't know. I, I don't really don't know. But they see the jhanas, they, they might be doing in a course, and then the whole thing breaks down again, too. You know, it doesn't stay with them, either. And mindfulness is also, you know, it's... Um, mindfulness, you can choose which one of the four you'd use. And the only one you actually see is the physical one. Yeah, but the mindfulness of your feeling and the mindfulness of your mental content may be happening. Whereas the physical, we can't do all of them at the same time. So the only one you actually see and that you can judge is the physical one, the first one, which may not be happening.
not well yes it could be but it's not necessarily connected what I'm trying to say is that you may be using a different base you may be using a base of mindfulness on your mental content you may not be wandering off completely you may be using a mindfulness on your emotions and at that time you cannot use mindfulness on your body you can't do two things at the same time so the, the, the only thing that you see would be the first one the others you can only find out through um, reactions so it's not that it's that little practice uh, well of course I mean amongst five billion inhabitants of this globe it's very little practice naturally but for good meditators it's not such an impossibility oh yes <laughs> it makes life go smoothly <laughs> hmm? yes mental state those two yes well feeling is a full-blown emotion and the mental state is the thing that's sort of arising there can be irritation arising but you don't have to get irritated but once we have irritation arising and then the mental state becomes really irritated then you have the content but you may have that just that feeling uh, of irritation which is then only a sort of a state but a full-blown emotion is anger or a full-blown emotion is love or compassion or um, disgust that's a full-blown emotion whereas uh, uh, the state of the mind can be quite um, not strong it can be quite mild and in order to see it it would be very helpful to see it because you don't have to get into that mental content then of trying to figure it all out and trying to react to it so if one can see that one one may be able to drop it right then and there you see this mental state coming up of irritation you don't have to get angry so there's the number two number four are fully blown the ones that we really know and the third one is the one that is sort of underlying it all not so strong Yes. Yes, they do. And uh, that's also often confused. But you see, it doesn't help you in mindfulness to know whether you're having pleasant, unpleasant, or, un- or neutral, because the emotion that comes up, that's what you feel in your mental state, actually. But when the emotion is there, that's the one that you need to deal with. If you can catch it before it becomes an emotion, that's fine. See, because pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feelings are not, don't become emotions immediately, but they very quickly do. So to be really watching for, uh, watching oneself, one has to be able to watch one's emotion. And one can, if you can become aware of that unpleasantness or that pleasantness before the emotion, that's excellent. Then it means the same thing. Yes. Yes. 
Objectivity. Mm. Yes. Sure. Mm. Yes. Well, see, when people say I feel really good about that, it's because their sense contact will give a nice feeling. Whatever the sense contact was, give them a nice feeling. If you can do the jhanas, you always do the jhanas first, and after that, after that, when you finish and you still have more time, that is the time to do investigation into insight. So you can do the zipper one if you like, you can investigate the four parts of the mind, you can just look at impermanence, Any, always after the jhanas is the time for insight, which goes the same way any time that one has had a meditation which was fairly concentrated afterwards is the time for insight. If the meditation is totally all over the place, when one uses that for looking into impermanence. So you can look into the, uh, the zipper one won't take more than five minutes anyway to see that there's nobody there. That's a good thing to do anyway. And uh, it's also a good thing to do the part-by-part um, part, um, sometime during the week because it's an automatic purification. Yes. yes, loving kindness part by part and then of course the concentration with insight at the end, insight into impermanence and using whatever brings insight into impermanence, whatever. Mm, no, not necessarily. No. Yes. Yes, and at that time, if the mindfulness is really established, one has, for instance, used mindfulness on the body by wiping the dish, and then the mind says, I need more hot water, then one has immediately that understanding that is now a reaction, which means a mental formation. And the mental formation is totally neutral, there's nothing unskillful about it, so it's quite skillful, so it's fine. And then the mind can go back to wiping, wiping, wiping. And then the mind says, I'm tired of this. Well, that's a mental formation. So you switch your mindfulness to that, which is appropriate. You can't keep on being mindful, watching your step, 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 when you're crossing a really busy street and there are cars and, and trucks everywhere honking at you, you know. You know, and you can say, well, wait a minute, I'm mindful, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you had your hand up, yes.
Eh? Oh, the Kashina. Oh, the, you mean the, the mess? That's another meditation method. Well, What color? That's fine. Well, a, a bright light is nothing other than a sign for that concentration is there. But we can use casinos, which are color discs, to instead of breath, in order to get concentrated. No, then just a sign that one's concentrated, not useful. Yes, yes, no. Just take one look and drop it. They are, casinas are meditation method for concentration. Mm, yeah, but they are also a sign that one is concentrated. No, there's nothing to use them for. No. Anything else? Yes. Well, the optical vision is not possible. I mean, you can't optically see that all the bits and pieces of this thing is constantly rising and ceasing, falling back together. I mean, you can't see it. It's just not possible. It would be foolish to imagine that it is. If you want to imagine something, you know that it used to be all little bits and pieces, you know, and then it was put together, and then it's a clock, and it's not very long anymore, and the thing is going to land in the rubbish bin because it just won't work anymore. So you've got a rising and ceasing on that gross level quite easily to recognize. I mean, you know, there's a certain limit to all these things. They don't last. And they also have to begin somewhere. And they begin with the bits and pieces. Where did the bits and pieces begin? The bits and pieces began with the natural elements. Something had to be made out of that. Where did the natural elements begin? And so on and so on. I mean, this was a tree, no? or more than one probably, many trees, hmm? and once it was a seed, eh? and once a bird dropped that seed, and then there was a tree, and then the tree got cut down, and then it became a meditation hall, and then one day it's going to break down completely, and it's going to be just rubbish, so that's optically possible, because you can see trees, you can see seeds, you can see rotten buildings, not, not so difficult. But the, the uh, actual fact of it all going like this, that's meditative. That's not possible to see like that. Anything else? Well, that's good. We've come to the end of the question. And so now that one would assume everything is known, no? <laughs> that's very good. Very happy about that. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Imagine you have a most beautiful white lotus flower growing in your heart. It opens all its petals so that you can see it in all its beauty. 
stretching out its arms towards the sun. And the sun makes a golden stream of light come out of the center of that lotus flower. And the golden stream of light fills you and surrounds you and gives you warmth and ease and love and joy. Feel the embrace of it. Now let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to everyone here. Fill everyone with the warmth and care from your heart. Embrace everyone with the joy and peacefulness that come from your heart. Think of your parents. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to their hearts, filling them with warmth and light and love, embracing them with gratitude. Think of those people that are waiting for you at home or those you will soon see and that are close to you. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart fill them from head to toe with warmth and light and love, the greatest gift you can give them, not expecting the same in return. Think of all your friends those you might soon see and meet. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to them 
the depths of friendship, with the warmth of your love. Filling them and embracing them with those feelings. Think of the people at work, neighbors at home, acquaintances, relations, let them all appear before your mind's eye. Let the golden stream of light in the center of your heart fill their heart with warmth and peace and joy and love, giving them the best that you have. If there's a difficult person in your life, think of that person with gratitude for the challenge that that represents. Or if there's a person towards whom you're quite indifferent, let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart fill that person with light and love and joy so that there's no obstruction in your own heart. Open your heart as wide as you can and let the golden stream of light reach out and flow out as far as it will go, taking warmth and love and joy and peace to as many hearts as possible, like a golden river that's going over its banks and floods the whole country with love and warmth and further on the whole of the globe.
and let it reach out further into the universe. attention back to yourself, feel that golden stream of light inside of yourself, bringing you warmth, joy, peacefulness and love, filling you and surrounding you, protective and secure. Now let the golden stream of light go back inside the lotus flower, which closes its petals. And then anchor the lotus flower in your heart, so that it may become one with it. We share the merits of this meditation retreat with all our teachers, our parents, our loved ones, our friends and our enemies. We share with all the devas that are present and those that are not. We share with the people who have been able to help us to keep well-fed and healthy, working for us in the kitchen. We share the merits with all the people who have supported this monastery with love and labor and donation so that we have this opportunity to be here. We share the merits with all creatures present in this forest, seen or unseen, any realm of being. We share the merits with all beings who can have benefit from them. We share the merits with each other. May beings everywhere be happy. I now officially close this meditation retreat. Noble silence is lifted. May you all be very happy.
There are many ways of making good karma. One way is listening to the true Dhamma. But uh, another way of making good karma is teaching Dhamma. So I would like to thank you very much for having come here and giving me the opportunity to make good karma. Thank you.